Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of The Whole Tooth, a podcast all about sharks, rays and their underwater habitat brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. I'm your host Isla and every episode we answer one of your shark and ocean questions with the help of actual scientists in that field so that you can get expert answers to the questions you've always wanted to know. But before we get our teeth sunk into this week's question, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to those of you who have taken the time to leave a positive review for us. Thank you so much. It really, really does mean a lot and we love reading your comments. I did promise that I'd read one out on the episode and so this week I'm going to give a shout out to Space Hog all the way over in Canada who says, a show for shark nerds, an awesome show for any ocean lover. Thank you so much for that positive review. We definitely aim to make this a podcast for all of you shark nerds and ocean lovers out there. And I'm so happy that we are achieving that. Just a friendly reminder, if you'd like to show the podcast some love, please consider leaving us a review and you might get a shout out on the show. Okay, on with today's question. This one came from Joe M by email and it had one of my favourite subject lines that I've ever received and that was do sharks have friends? Joe writes I've always wanted to know whether sharks can be social animals I've always thought of them to be solitary but then you can see them in groups and I've always wondered why are they capable of being social? Joe this is such a brilliant question and I have the perfect person to answer that for you. My guest today is Dr Brian Keller, he is a shark scientist specialising in the spatial and temporal ecology and social behaviour of elasmobranchs which in a very basic sense means he looks at shark behaviour and habitat use across space and time. So he asks questions like Why do we see sharks group in a certain area and how are they interacting with each other and their environment within these groupings? His master's project, which was funded by Save Our Seas, looked at the social behaviour of juvenile lemon sharks in the Bahamas and more specifically whether they chose to hang out with sharks that they were familiar with. He now works for Saving the Blue and on another Save Our Seas funded project which aims to understand why silky sharks form aggregations around fish aggregating devices or fads and what this could mean for their conservation. We talk about Brian's fascinating research throughout this episode and explore the difference between sharks forming groups for social reasons and aggregating for other purposes. We also talk about why it might be advantageous to hang out with your sharky friends and whether there are any other examples of this in other shark species. It is such an interesting episode on a topic that we are still very much learning about and a topic that we might not necessarily associate with sharks, social behaviour. So without further ado, get ready to head to the lovely warm waters of the Bahamas and maybe grab a buddy to come along with you. And let's dive in to our episode. Hello, Brian, and welcome to the Whole Tooth Podcast. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no worries. I've been so excited to get you on and to answer this very interesting and very fun question. We're going to talk all about shark social behaviour. But before we dive into that, I want to ask you 
a little bit about you, learn about your, your, your life and your career with sharks. And we're going to start in the place that we always start on the Whole Tooth podcast, which is what is your most memorable experience in the ocean? This is just such a hard question to answer. Um, I've been trying to pick a moment that stands out the most to me. I've been lucky enough to work on some cool teams and you know do some cool research. So I have some you know really exciting moments that come to mind. But I think if I'm narrowing it down, it has to go to something that was really unexpected. Um, so I, I would think both both of these memories involve sawfish, um, and actually both are in Andros. Um, the first, I suppose, would be we were catching uh, sawfish. We were trying to tag them to learn more about their spatial distribution and movement patterns, things of that nature. And we, we caught a large female, and we turned her over to put an acoustic tag in her, and she was actually pregnant um, and in the process of giving birth. So that that was pretty crazy, yeah, and we never expected that. Um, I don't think anyone has ever seen uh, any of the five sawfish species uh gave birth in the wild before so it, it confirmed a, a few things like what size they're born at they came out belly to belly um their their rostra all had the gelatinous sheath around it so that was that was pretty cool but i think on that same vein the coolest memory would probably be with um tristan guttridge for for saving the blue that first experience with, was with dr dean grubbs um, at florida state but with Tristan, we were filming um, lemon sharks in Andros, and someone spotted a sawfish. And we actually ended up using a drone to follow the sawfish, and then we put a gill net around it and were able to catch it like that. And that, that was just, it was so crazy because we had no intentions of, you know, catching a sawfish. And if it wasn't for a film crew having a fancy drone to go find it, we would have never been able to stay with it. And then we just got really lucky using a gill net made for 60 centimeter lemon sharks to catch a, you know, three meter sawfish. Um, so that was, it was just so unexpected and exciting. I think that, that second memory would probably be it for me. Yeah. Wow. Oh my God. I've, I have so many questions <laughs> from those two experiences, <laughs> but I guess um, my first one is kind of really about the the pregnant females. Obviously you caught it to tag her, but what did you do? when you realized that she was actually giving birth in that process? Yeah, so we obviously didn't want to be invasive um, and we didn't want to leave her in a condition that would you know, predispose her pups to injury or anything like that. So when we turned her over, we were going to put an acoustic tag in her peritoneum or her body cavity just you know, to monitor her presence. Um, on acoustic receivers, but she also received some satellite tags. But like I said, when we turned her over, we noticed she was like in the process of giving birth and some of the pups were like coming out and we didn't want to like let her go while she was thrashing about. If we were trying to release her, she ended up being really peaceful and calm, but we didn't want to take the chance of, um, of, of hurting her or the pups. So we assisted with those two pups that were coming out first because um, like I said, they were belly to belly and you could just see their, their saws like rubbing back and forth together. Um, and then while we were working her out, she pushed another one out all by herself. And then two more were in the process of coming out and we assisted with those. Um, so there's five in total that were born when we were there. And then you could feel inside that she had a lot more pups, but she wasn't ready. She wasn't trying to push them out. So, you know, we didn't do anything like that. We were only really concerned when 
that the rostrum were actually coming out of her and we didn't want them, you know, to, to get jammed up or anything like that on the boat or when we were releasing her. So yeah, we, we sent her on her way. Um, she was tagged with, you know, thousands of dollars worth of fancy jewelry. So we were able to follow her for quite some time in her movements. And yeah, it was pretty, pretty stellar experience. Wow. What a special, what a special thing to see. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. Cause like you said, I mean, sawfish are pretty special animals to see anyway. And then to see one given birth is just incredible. And I think this is also a first on the Whole Tooth podcast. We've never had a shark midwife actually on the podcast before. (laughs) (laughs) Someone who's assisted a shark and given birth. Um, Oh, that's funny. We actually, we have videos of it too. I can can send you all the the fun videos. Yes, please. Oh, I would love to see that. I would absolutely love to see that. Cool. Um, And I think this is something that we talk a lot about on this podcast, but I think a lot of people are really surprised by how little we actually know about sharks and how much we're still finding out about them. Like even, you know, basic things like where they give birth or, um, you know, how they give birth and how many, how many come out and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, really, really cool. And a lot of the time it is ad hoc as well, because if you've got the equipment there, why not? But yeah, obviously you've had, you know, a, a very exciting career with sharks, but I was really interested to know what inspired you to start working with sharks in the first place. Yeah, I, I guess, so my background, I was born in, in the desert in Arizona, in the Sonoran Desert, and that's where I spent the first, you know, 20 years of my life. I went to undergrad out there too. Uh, but whenever we would visit family around the United States on you know the west coast or the east coast I would always want to go to the local aquariums and I would always want to go to the beach and you know that eventually became me having a fish tank and um, getting certified to scuba dive and then working at a fish store so I've, I guess I always just had this interest to learn more about marine life um, and then sharks in general of course have, are always appealing to me and I think you know, some of the reasons you touched on earlier is there's a lot of things we just don't know about them, so there's a little bit of mystery. Um, but then also, you know, their environmental importance, the fact that, you know, some of them are, you know, predators as a little kid, that probably um, really drew me in, like seeing the big sharks and like, oh, that's so cool, and, you know, things of that nature. So I think they've always just been intriguing to me, and I've always been excited when I've been learning about them, and that sort of drew me closer, and eventually um, I worked at an aquarium in Baltimore. I interned there with Allen Henningsen. Um, and then from there, I did my first internship at the Bimini Biological Field Station. And it sort of just always built on itself. And eventually, you know, I was doing my own research. Yeah. So t- tell us a little bit more about working at Bimini. What was that like? It was a great experience. Um, that So I went when I was in undergrad for the first time and I interned over the summer to do the pit project there which is the passive integrated transponder it's just the name of the tags that we use in the census program for those sharks Um, so basically the goal is to catch as many of the the neonates or the juvenile lemon sharks around Bimini um, in those nurseries that you can to get a better idea of you know how many individuals are being born you can also look at growth rates mortality rates things of that nature so that was my first real introduction to shark research Um, actually my, my real first introduction to research in general, really. Um, so that was a really great experience. I, I, I really enjoyed working there, and, and that was when Tristan Guttridge was the director. So the next year, he invited me back to do my master's there. 
Um, and that's where um, I worked on the project with him and Jean Finger on the social behavior of the, the juvenile lemons. Yeah, and so many, so many people that we've had on this podcast are connected to the Bimini Field Station. It really feels like this, you know, very sort of prominent, uh, prominent field station where a lot of shark scientists, you know, get their training and and sort of really realise their passion. And it seems like such a special, special place. And of course, you got to work, as you said earlier, working with the likes of Tristan and also Dean Grubbs as well, which must have been amazing to learn from them. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, you're you're right. Um, It's definitely a very established facility. It has a lot of history there. You know, Dr. Gruber setting it back setting it up back in the 90s, and he was doing research in Bimini uh, well before that. But th- there's a lot that the Bahamas has to offer for shark research, and at least for folks over the United States, the convenience of getting over to Bimini or Andros, wherever, wherever the case may be, um, it's, it's really convenient, and it's easy to access the really diverse group of species uh, and to do research on them. So it's a, it's a great place to, to work. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you are still connected to the Bahamas, you know, through your work with Saving the Blue. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about, you know, where you are now and sort of how you got from Bimini to where you are just now. Yeah, absolutely. So Tristan uh, and Annie Guttridge, they started their own uh, nonprofit called Saving the Blue. And the the work we're doing is out of Andros, Bahamas. Um, So Andros, for those who are unfamiliar, is just to the west of Nassau. And it's an absolutely massive island, uh, especially relative to the other islands in the the Bahamian chain. And even though it's so large, there's, you know, relatively few people that live there. I I believe it's well under 5,000 people that live throughout the whole island, which means there's huge swaths of land that have no one there. Um, it's, the habitat is so pristine. It's incredible. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity there for research. There's a lot of shark species. There's you know sawfish as well. And uh, it's a it's a really great place to do research. So we have some um, projects going on related to great hammerheads, of course, sawfish, um, and also silky sharks. So one of the cool things about Andros is there's a, a navy buoy that's in deep water. Um, in the tongue of the ocean. So it's an area of deep water right off the coast of uh, Andros, and there's a navy buoy there where there's research done. Um, and it's an Andros, it's a Bahamian facility, but the US Navy operates there as well. Um, and the, the buoy sits in you know thousands of feet of water, and since it's in such deep water, animals aggregate underneath the buoy. And silky sharks are, are one of the cool species that show up. So if you if you go out there on your boat and you hop in the water, you're likely to see a silky shark, and you don't usually need to put any bait in the water to see them. Um, they just show up because they're aggregating under uh, that buoy. So it, it's a really it's a really cool place. It's a really unique place, and there's so much left for us to learn and so much left for us to do there. Nice, nice. And oh, I'm just, as somebody who lives and works in Scotland, I do love Scotland. The waters here are beautiful. But when I hear about stuff like that, I just, just makes me so jealous. <laughs> it must be such an amazing place. Yeah, every place has its own charm. It does. For sure. It does. It does. Um, but just the idea of having, you know, all of those different species of shark, you know, at your fingertips, really, really special, uh, really cool and very special place. 
We're going to talk about the work that you do with Silky Sharks a little bit later on in the episode. And we're also going to talk about the work that you did with Lemon Sharks in, in Bimini. Because this podcast episode is all about shark social behaviour. Do sharks have friends? My favourite question that has been sent in by a listener. Um, but first, we're kind of going to talk a little bit about what the difference is between sharks kind of coming together in a group, so aggregating, and actually sharks being social with one another, because there is a difference between the two. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting distinction. Um, and, you know, sharks can aggregate for a number of reasons, which I'm sure we'll chat about. But the difference really has to do with like the structure of the group and perhaps the preferences of the individuals within the group. So an aggregation would just be any gathering of animals. Uh, probably most people would agree in excess of, of two individuals. If you have two, you'd probably just call them a partnership or a pair. Um, but once you start getting three or more animals, you know, you're getting to the point where you can deem it an aggregation. The, the actual number of animals or individuals required to call it an aggregation likely varies by species and who you're talking to. But it's a gathering of animals um, at a specific date and time. Uh, obviously and the, the reason they're aggregating like I said we can chat about that it might differ between the groups or, or it surely does differ between the groups but when we start getting into the terms and using social grouping it refers to there being some level of structure within that aggregation and basically the way I think about it is is the distribution of animals or is the preference of the animals in that aggregation random if it's completely random then it's an aggregation if there's no structure to it. But if the animals are starting to swim close to other individuals because they prefer to swim to a similarly sized animal, or if they prefer to associate with the females in the group relative to the males, um, then we can start saying that there's some sort of social preferences. So there's some higher order mechanism at play that's driving the structure within the group. Mm -hmm. And that, that's... I think it's really important to distinguish that because because of you know things like whales and dolphins that you usually see groups of them in their social pods. I think some people can mistake a grouping of animals as they've gathered for a social reason, whereas, as you said, aggregations are a bit more random. And and yes, I wanted my next question was why might they aggregate? So why might we see you know, those big groups or small groups, depending on the species, why, why might we see that happen in certain places? Yeah, the cause for aggregation, like I said, totally depends on the, the species, the, you know, time of year, on the location. Generally speaking, if you wanted to, you know, characterize it really broadly, the animals are aggregating because it, it poses some distinct advantage to the, their own, like, evolutionary fitness so by associating with other animals in this large group it means maybe they're able to get food better maybe they're able to avoid predators maybe they have a long distance migration and um, maybe they won't get lost as easy or maybe it's just a safety aspect but there has to be some evolutionary advantage for these animals to group together or else the behavior wouldn't persist over time uh, with respect to what the variables could actually be the moving for refuge is a good one so animals seeking refuge from uh, 
Predators, Tristan actually had a paper called, uh, let's see, it was called Deep Danger, I think. Ooh, and good name. Yeah, so there's there's this spot in uh, Bimini where the lemon sharks go at high tide and they aggregate at high tide in this little refuge uh, back deep in the mangroves. It's a really cool spot. And they go there because they're seeking refuge from larger predators that are able to get into um, the shallow sand flats and the mangroves during high tide. Um, so they're seeking refuge, uh, and and the the risk of being eaten is what's driving um, that aggregation. And within that aggregation, there are social groups. Um, so you know, all aggregation or all social groups are likely a part of an aggregation, but it's not the same, vice versa. Um, but then outside of you know seeking refuge, like I said, it could also be hunting tactics or um, if animals are migrating, like black tip sharks down the coast of the United States, you see them in these huge aggregations. Uh, depending on what time of year you're looking, you're going to see you know these large groups of black tip sharks moving down the coast. Um, so that there can be quite a few reasons why the animals are moving, but ultimately it's to ensure their evolutionary fitness and extend their likelihood to reproduce. Mm, so kind of like the the basic the basic needs, if you like, so food, shelter that sort of thing and it is a it's quite a cool idea actually to imagine it sort of like because as, as you said you can have social groupings that might occur within those aggregations so that's almost in my head that's almost like say you end up at a restaurant and you end up bumping into someone you know and sitting at the ta- same table <laughs> could that be like a fair analogy yeah i like that yeah, yeah that's perfect brilliant so for sure we've talked about some of the reasons why sharks might kind of gather in a particular area or you know form lots of um you know form big groups but the whole purpose of this episode is to talk about social behavior and 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 how we define that and whether there's any evidence of that in the shark world you know do sharks have friends is there evidence of that um, and that's something that you looked at for your master's project, which was funded by funded by the Save Our Seas Foundation, where you studied the social behaviour of lemon sharks in Bimini. Um, and I wanted to ask, why did you decide, first of all, to investigate this question? Well, it, like you, I think the, the social behaviour of sharks is really fascinating. Really, of all animals, it's, it's just so crazy as people that we can... I mean, look on these other species and see them interact and, you know, we can't ask them what they're thinking. We, we just have to carry out some experience to, experiments to try to determine that. Um, and it's so fascinating to watch these animals. Like my neighbor feeds ducks outside every day and, you know, sometimes a duck comes in and chases all the other ducks off and then sometimes <laughs> one duck will come in and he'll have like four or five behind him. So it's just like these dynamics are always at play in nature and trying to understand what's driving them is, you know, really cool. So when I was in Bimini the first time and I would, you know, talk to Tristan often about social behavior because he had conducted a lot of work on social behavior. He did his PhD in Bimini um, looking at the, the grouping dynamics of lemon sharks actually in that refuge location we were speaking of earlier, which is called Spot. Um, and he's also done some really cool work uh, on partner preference and things of that nature, all with this, the same lemon sharks in Bimini. So sort of, you know, building on his work and looking at the next steps of what's really driving partner preference and things of that nature. Uh, one of the cool findings in his dissertation that uh, really spoke to me was that in spot, sometimes across seasons, he would see the same individual sharks show up together 
and associate with each other in this refuge location. So they didn't live there. They lived somewhere else, but at high tide, they would come in, and sometimes you'd see the same two hanging out together as you did in years past. So again, it's just like what's driving this behavior in nature. Um, so looking at the preference for familiar individuals seemed like the next logical step in trying to determine what's driving the partner preference. Mm-hmm. And so how did you how did you test for that so how would you figure out that it was you know individuals were actually hanging out with the same sharks as opposed to it kind of just being like a coincidence sort of thing yeah exactly so yeah i mean totally we relied on statistics to you know identify the likelihood of it being chance or random or anything like that but as far as experimental design goes um we had four separate holding tanks, okay? And we went out and we, you know, we caught all the juvenile lemon sharks with gill nets, um, and we got the sharks from South Bimini, so it was, you know, right off where the marine lab was uh, in Bimini or the field station. And for those who are unfamiliar with, like, the Bahamas and sort of how it works is the, the sand flats are really shallow. Um, so at, at low tide, there's, you know, between a foot or two of water, usually depending where you are on the sand flats, of course, it can dry out, um, but we picked areas to put these holding pens where they obviously wouldn't dry out at low tide, and we can just walk to them. So it's really convenient for access. We don't need to take boats every day. Um, we just walk out off the beach, and there's these pens. And the, the way the pens were designed is it's actually the orange construction mesh, like the plastic mesh that you'll see um, that borders or like contains construction sites. And we set those up into into circles, and we use like rebar and uh, cinder blocks to actually create the structure of the pen. And then that's where the sharks are housed. So they're they're still exposed to wild conditions, you know. So the water is always changing. It's it's in the the sea, um, but it's on these sand flats. So we we went out and we caught. I think it was 23 sharks. It was quite some time ago now, um, but I think we caught 23 juvenile lemon sharks, and we split them. Um, almost evenly because it was 23 amongst the pens. So there's four pens where these animals lived. And we separated them and they stayed in those pens for two weeks before we began any experiments. And one assumption of the experiment, which is probably not entirely true, is that the animals um, that were separated into these pens had no experience with the animals in other pens. So we were saying they were all starting off as strangers, which, like I said, there's surely times when, you know, they probably had experiences with each other. But it's like really the best you can do for these sort of, you know, wild experiments. So after they stayed in those respective pens for like two weeks, we would take two sharks from one pen and two sharks from another pen and introduce them in a much larger pen. Um, and allow them to just swim around. We didn't do anything special. We had a GoPro hanging above and we just recorded their swimming behavior for an hour. And then we used some tracking programs that essentially turned their swimming patterns into statistics, into like coordinate points. And from there we could carry out various statistical tests. Um, And what we found is that the sharks that lived together were significantly more likely to associate with each other than they were with a shark from the other pen. So they were showing a preference for their familiar partners. Um, And this is something I I usually explain it to people as it it just makes sense, right? Because if if you think about your dogs, like if I took my dogs to a dog park and they've never met any of the other dogs before, they're going to hang out more with each other than they would with other dogs. 
or if you think about two preschoolers, um, if they live next to each other and they're on the same street and you put them in a class with kids they've never met before, they'll probably hang out with their neighbor than the strangers that they've never met before. And it's just something that's pretty common across the, the animal kingdom that we seek familiarity because there's comfort in things that we know. Um, so I know people can start looking in their own lives to see, you know, if you go to a party, you're probably going to go say hi to the people you know first and, you know, introduce yourself to strangers. And of course, you know, experience will vary, but it's something that's pretty common across the animal species that we seek familiar interactions like that. Yeah, I think that's so cool to sort of show evidence of that in sharks because I think a lot of people mistake A, how intelligent sharks can be as well so like I think people would assume that they wouldn't be able to recognize um you know another shark or be familiar with another shark but they are capable of those complex social behaviors and I think that's that's so that's really cool to show and especially that you know they kind of you know formed I hate to call it a friendship because it doesn't sound very um scientific but (laughs) I like to think about it like that they kind of formed that I know you said that you can't completely rule out the fact that some of them might have been familiar with each other from the wild, but, you know, maybe not, you know, not in every case, certainly. So, you know, it seems like they kind of form those those friendships or, you know, familiarity in in the pens, um, which is which is really cool. It is. And and the cool thing, too, that sort of um, for anyone who's skeptical about, you know, the sharks being familiar with each other beforehand. One really cool part of this, you know, study that just sort of came out was that across, I think it was like almost two months that we were doing this work, the preference for familiars strengthened. So if you look at the preference they had at the end of the the study for their familiar partners versus at the beginning, it was stronger at the end. Um, And the way I think of this is, again, going back to like the kindergartner example, um, if you look at the preference of these kids that have all never met each other on day one of school, they're probably going to, you know, not have a very strong affinity towards a specific partner. But you go back at the end of the school year, there's going to be like some really strong partnerships within that group because they've had time to develop the, an affinity for each other. And that was more or less what we saw with the sharks. Yeah, yeah. And, and also, cool thing about that too is that you're talking about familiarity between t-sharks that are not necessarily related is that is that correct yeah yeah Yeah. there's probably some you know siblings in there um but it's you know we didn't do genetics testing on those actual sharks um they might have those data now but yeah you know we'd assume that there was uh we didn't really make a comment on the genetic relatedness but tristan did and in his research that we were chatting about earlier some of the partnerships he saw um were between siblings so it that's a whole another thing like preference of kin or kinship and it's it's really interesting and that's such a harder question to answer because it's so difficult to 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 detangle kinship and familiarity because if they're in the same litter then they're likely born right by each other right if the mom's swimming by and she's just dropping pups and they're all going to be born in the same proximity so that means they're already predisposed at having a really high level of familiarity and they're likely to have a home range that overlaps so it's it would be so difficult to detangle in this case kinship versus uh, just a general familiarity preference yeah yeah but it doesn't it doesn't have that doesn't have to be the case for sharks to choose want 
prefer each other because that that was my first initial thought is that um a lot of social behaviors we see are between you know either relatives or sharks that want to get it on with each other whereas you know that's not necessarily that's not necessarily the case it's way more complex and like nuanced than that which is really really cool um and just just a quick note as well the the way that you set the experiment that kind of reminds me of you know those tv shows that we see a lot now where it's like love is blind or like married at first sight (laughs) where you just kind of like put them in their own little capsules together which is so cool um but yeah that's awesome and 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 do we know of like any other kind of similar social behaviors in other species of shark so it's there was research done before the project we did by Dave Jacoby, um, and he showed something similar um, with, let's see, it was um, the small spotted cat shark. So I think it was Jacoby et al., 2012. Um, so, and again, like you look at the small spotted cat shark and the lemon shark, and you know they're not very similar from a life history perspective, but what they do share is the fact that they're relatively easy to do experiments on. Um, so I think, you know, we've only looked at this in a couple species of shark, but I think it really is probably a common trait or a common preference across many or most species, but it's just so difficult to answer these questions with sharks to have an animal you can do, um, you know, semi-wild captive trials on, um, an animal that is small enough to work with, where you can get enough, where they're they're hardy enough to survive. Um, so it's, it's challenging to ask these questions on, you know, so many species. Like, imagine doing this with, like, basking sharks. Like, it would just be impossible. Like, there's no way. Um, I mean, maybe with drones one day and tracking like that, you'll be able to look at partner preference to answer a question like this. But, you know, I just think there hasn't been a lot of... Uh, there's not a lot of species with this described simply because of the limitations of science, not because of the animal's social preference. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have had... Um, we've had a paper before it's maybe not so much partner preference but it is um, it was genetic tagging studies that showed that the same individuals come back to the same sites but they often travel to the same sites with extended family as well so that's so cool for basking um, sharks for basking sharks yeah no really way, cool. that's awesome yeah and they also very very recent one. I can send you the paper if you like. Um, yeah, a very recent one last year where they had animal toed cameras attached onto the Baskin shark. I don't know if you saw this. Um, so it's not evidence of familiarity, but it is a little bit of like pre mating behavior that I just thought was really sweet. Where they, oh, well, I've completely put my own human preference on this. Um, <laughs> like really sweet. That's okay. um, but it, it appears that they are touching fins under the water before they stop mating but that's about as much as we know <laughs> from Baskin yeah. shark social behavior um, that's that's fascinating see it's so hard like to study them because like they're so large and like even with you guys like the water can be you know really nice but a lot of times it's not super clear it's just but technology is like you know helping us out these days it's just so cool with the, the cameras and stuff it is, it is. Um, but yeah, so many, so many question marks. It's such a, such an awesome area of uh, exploration. And, and I just love the idea of familiarity in sharks and sharks kind of like choosing to go with the sharks that they know. I think that's, that's such a cool thing to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and like almost like short cliques in a way like they've yeah. got little little cliques that they like to hang about in that's right So the, the work that you did with Lemon Sharks was a little while ago, but you do have a more recent Save Our Seas funded project, which is looking at the aggregating behaviours in silky sharks that you were mentioning earlier and the relationship between that and uh, fish aggregating devices. Um, and I wondered why, why is it important to understand behaviours like this and how they overlap with human activities like fishing? Yeah, it's, it's incredibly important. Um, so my, my day job, my like real job is, uh, working for no fisheries doing fisheries management, um, mostly around like tuna fisheries and, uh, things like that where sharks are often caught as bycatch. So, you know, everything I'm doing here today is independent of, of my work at NOAA, but the, the experience I've gained there has made me realize how much, uh, you know, effort there is fishing effort on fads. And um, for those unfamiliar, fish aggregating devices are, um, are basically, they can be anything floating out in the ocean. Um, it could be a buoy, it could be something as sophisticated where it has actual sensors on it that reports back to, to vessels or to some operating hub. Um, but fads can be very intricate, but they can be very simple as well. And the, the reason they're so successful at getting animals aggregating under them is because you know you'll start out with a little fish going to this you know floating pieces seaweed or grass or whatever and then a bigger fish comes and then a bigger fish comes and then all of a sudden you have this huge community of animals underneath these aggregating devices and because they're so successful at bringing these animals together they're used pretty heavily in commercial fisheries and across the world like the the use of fads is really proliferating i'm I'm not sure how many tens of thousands of fads are um, deployed each year, but I think it's you know a pretty a substantial number. That's obviously something that's hard to actually tally, but the the use of fads is indeed proliferating. That's for sure a fact. And um, since these sharks, you know, tunas, other fishes all aggregate underneath them, um, it, it predisposes them to a certain level of risk of being captured in commercial fisheries. And, you know, for certain species, it, it might not be a huge deal if, you know, they can be managed sustainably, um, like mahi-mahi, for example, a really sustainable fish. And, you know, in most cases, there can obviously be scenarios where they're not managed appropriately. But for many species of sharks that are, you know, relatively long-lived, they mature late in life, they have few young, the gestation might be a year or two, um, the risk of being captured underneath these fads can mean... Um, can be problematic from a, a population standpoint. Um, so silky sharks are quite vulnerable to overfishing, not only because their life history, but also because of their um, likelihood to associate with these fads where they're exposed to high level of uh, risk and effort associated with commercial fisheries. So to understand the factors driving that likelihood of being bycaught or captured as bycatch, uh, underneath fads. It's really important for managers to be able to mitigate that risk. Um, so if there's anything we can learn about the factors making it more likely for a silky shark to be captured underneath a fad, um, then managers can use those data to you know, implement solutions to decrease the bycatch of silky sharks. I think silkies are, um, silkies and blue sharks are the, I believe, two most bycaught species of sharks in the world. Um, so 
anything we can do to try to decrease that by learning about their um, preferences can really help. And just, I guess, the last thing to add on is the social aspect of it. Um, it's not just animals showing up at these fads as random. There's, there's structure within these groups. Um, so trying to determine what role social behavior has in these aggregations can also help us get As we're just talking about now, a huge aspect of your work is informing fisheries management and policy you know sort of going between the two sides if you like of science and practice and I know we get a lot of early career scientists or future scientists who listen to this podcast and I wondered if you had you know any advice on how this is potentially quite a hard question but any advice on how to translate that research into kind of policy and management action so how to you know really kind of have that impact it's a great question um because i know throughout graduate school whenever i would write a proposal i would always say this research you know has the potential to have an effect on management because these data are going to be really useful Um, but then you know i didn't really know then about the management at all so my my current job has helped me learn a lot about management and this exact process of how science is supplied to managers and then managers use those data to implement just like management measures or bycatch mitigation strategies or something to that effect um, but before my my current job at no fisheries I, I didn't know any of that so it would sort of just be like this mysterious cloud where i'd be like these data are going to be useful for conservation and that was like it you know um but i think the important part is it's it's challenging to learn about this you know whole new branch of management but actually how those data are used from a management perspective can be really helpful Um, so number one trying to become familiar with whatever management pipeline um, is associated with the system you're working in (coughs) excuse me so if you're working in you know international waters that might be some international group that manages that species Um, or if you're working along your coastline there's going to be some domestic organization domestic government group or fisheries management council that manages that species um, or perhaps that the sector of species or that region or that population so really understanding what management body is going to use those data is helpful and then to learn more about the actual process of that management group so a lot of these management groups have a scientific body and they have a management body Um, so the science will you know not necessarily conduct their own science but sometimes they will Um, but they'll also take up science from external groups so submitting your working paper to that scientific group so they can review it, formulate a management decision, and then send it over to the management body for them to actually take action on, is, is really how you have to approach this um, to get things done. So I would say just trying to learn as much as you can about the management body for your species at play is, is a great one. And then also to try to think about that question really with a great amount of detail before you actually conduct your research because if you're trying to fit your scientific conclusions to a management question it might be challenging and it might be impossible Um, but if you're able to come up with a really specific question that you want to address before you conduct your research you'll be able to tailor your research to be more effective at answering that question Um, a lot of the times there's great data out there that's really cool but managers can't use it because it's 
that there's one variable that wasn't controlled for or you know the sample size needed to be a little bit bigger or, or something to that effect so just ensuring that the questions you're asking are focused on fisheries management from the get-go and the methods are being developed to address those specific questions I think is is a huge step that me in grad school I didn't do those things because I didn't I didn't know about them yet yeah thank you and that's exactly why I wanted to ask that question because I feel like when you're studying or when you're kind of at university or college or whatever that's the side of things that you're not really taught about like you're very much taught how to be an academic and how to write good scientific papers but you're not necessarily taught how that can translate to a to a policy or management um impact and that's probably the hardest thing I would say like as you become a scientist is actually figuring out how to do that so so yeah I really wanted to ask that question while I had you and also kind of linked to that and linked to that sort of kind of outreach and non-academic work a lot of what you've done as well is outreach around your research particularly with uh, school children and you know other children in in Bimini and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about this because I, I, I find that really exciting. Yeah I, yeah I think it's really cool and I think it's really important to involve you know everyone wherever you're doing the research so like in Bimini when we went there part of my Save Our Seas grant was to do outreach so we ended up giving outreach presentations to every student enrolled in public school in Bimini which sound I mean Bimini is a small place but that was our goal. Uh, yeah, it was cool. Um, it was it was really neat to be able to meet like every kid on the island basically and teach them about sharks. And one thing that was really surprising to me is you know these these kids are born you know within view of the sea, but they don't really have as much passion for it as I would think. Well, passion's the wrong word. Um, maybe familiarity is a much better word in a different context than what we're speaking about because. The passion's there. Um, they obviously love the ocean. It's part of their life every single day. But I was shocked to learn like how many kids don't go in the ocean, or um, you know, like we're unfamiliar with some of the facts about the sharks that live there, or things of that nature. So we would do things to try to increase that familiarity. Like I would go give lectures. Um, we would invite them down to the actual field station, and we would take these kids snorkeling that had never been snorkeling before. Um, which is just, yeah, it was just really cool. And, you know, we're just doing this really small thing. And, you know, for someone who goes out snorkeling every day, it was like, oh, this isn't a big deal. Let's go snorkeling. But for some of these kids, it was, you know, life-changing because they'd never seen what was in their own backyard that they looked at from the surface every day of their lives. Um, So it was really cool to be able to play a little role in that. And similarly, I've done uh, outreach in, you know, South Carolina and throughout Florida. And it was was a really similar uh, experience that a lot of the kids in these coastal communities don't really have that much of a a role or they don't have a lot of involvement with the ocean. And to me, as someone who came from the desert and was so passionate about finding any possible way to get involved with the ocean, it was just really surprising. So trying to be like the sort of conduit for these kids to learn about the ocean and how great it is and, you know, how they can do so many things in the ocean or how they can benefit from the ocean every day um, was a really valuable opportunity for me and allowed me a lot of personal growth. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting that you say that because we have exactly the same issue here. So where I live is, a, you know, right by the sea on the west coast of Scotland. And a lot of the kids here, like obviously the oceans, like you said, it's part of their life, but they don't necessarily go in it every day or, or know about that the life that lives 
in it. And when you see their face light up for the first time, when you take them for a snorkel, it's like the best, the best feeling ever. It's so cool. Um, and such a lovely thing to do. And I always say to, to scientists as well, if you're ever nervous about public speaking, work with kids because <laughs> they really prepare you for the unexpected. <laughs> yeah, they can be ruthless sometimes, but you're right. That's true. <laughs> they can. Um, I did a talk in a school in a school recently and they actually grilled me harder than my PhD viber. It was quite intense. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, keeping you honest but I just we're coming to the end of our conversation I just wanted to bring it back to social behavior for a little bit um and ask you know how are we advancing in our understanding of shock social behavior um you know are we still at the beginnings of this field or you know how how have we advanced in the last in the last couple of years well it's a tough one because I feel like the more we learn the less we realize that we know. Um, we just like unlock these new questions as soon as we learn more. So we're definitely you know, learning more with every publication that comes out and there's a lot of great research being done across the world, but there's still so many unresolved questions. And one thing um, that I forgot to mention earlier is there's new work that came out relatively, I'm not sure when, maybe like 2016, I could look it up, but it was from Johan Morier. I think it was um, out of Maria, that they did this work on black tip sharks, black tip reef sharks, melanopterus. And it was fascinating that they tagged this large cohort of sharks and they basically identified four like clicks, like you were talking about earlier, that associated with each other but rarely interacted between groups. And the fascinating part is that these groups had a spatial overlap. So they had the opportunity to actually cross paths with each other, but they still had this spatial structure within the larger group of animals. Um, so, so things like that that are advancing science are incredible. And the, like the algorithms that I was speaking about earlier, that was something actually crafted by um, Dave Jacoby, who did the small spotted cat shark research as well. So there's new tools coming about to analyze these social behaviors. Um, science is, you know, obviously strong and coming up with these unique methodologies to answer our questions. So it's definitely progressing in the right direction, but there's there's certainly a lot that we don't know. My goodness, it's so fascinating, like just thinking about these little cliques of sharks that have the opportunity to speak to one another, but they don't, like almost like, you know, the typical American high school where you're all separated into your, <laughs> into your little groups. So cool to think about. But yeah, I'm going to bring us to a close because I'm just really conscious of your time. But we have two two quick questions that we ask uh, every guest that we like to end the podcast with. And the first one is, if you could say one thing, what is one thing that you wish people knew about sharks? This is a tough one too. Um, I don't know. I, I think this is probably controversial but I think it's important it's like an important reality check for people um I see it a lot with my current work about um like sharks being captured in fisheries and things to that effect and a lot of people are just um opposed to it from the get-go right and I'm not advocating if sharks should be killed or fisheries or not but I just want to alert people that it's like a, f a food security issue for a lot of people around the world to be able to access 
um, you know, fish protein and, and a byproduct of that is sometimes catching sharks and sometimes consuming them. So I think a lot of people don't realize that it's, it's not practical to shut down the fisheries that interact with sharks or to potentially even harvest sharks. Um, but what is practical is trying to make those fisheries as sustainable as possible and using science the best way we can to ensure um, those practices, like I said, are sustainable. So, I, you know, it, it's an unfortunate reality, I suppose, to some that, you know, these sharks are going to be killed. And it's not something as people who love sharks and work every day to learn more about them is something that we might, you know, love, but it's just, we're not going to be able to change that. So, but what we can change is, you know, trying to use science to make it as sustainable as possible and ensure the long-term health of these species. Absolutely. That's a really good one. And that's something that we've talked about a fair bit on this podcast with a very, with, you know, various different guests is actually the reality of fisheries and, um, you know, what it would actually mean if we banned shark fisheries completely for, you know, often a lot of the developing nations around the world too. Um, and we just talked about that last week with, with Sarah Fowler as well. She was, she, she mentioned the fact that, you know, it's a lot of people are making that decision not to eat fish and it's great if you have the privilege to be able to do that, but not everyone does. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah, it is a privilege to be able to say, I don't want to eat fish. When some people do not have that choice. It's for their own health that they do. Yeah, yeah. And and again, you know, your work is helping with this. You know, there's lots and lots of scientists all around the world that are working to get more understanding of sharks and to make, uh, help inform sustainable fisheries management. And in some cases, for some species of shark, that might mean they, they can't be fished, but for some, it might mean they can. And these are the steps that you need to take to make this more sustainable um, and, you know, help reduce that decline or halt that decline in shark species across the world. But people like yourself are informing that all the time. Um, and, you know, like we said earlier, we are finding things out every day. We are making new discoveries every day and it's so exciting. Um, but my final question is a slightly, slightly funner one. And it's one that we end every podcast on. And that is, if you could be any species of shark, ray, or skate in the world, what would you be and why? Hmm. My initial, my gut is to go with great hammerheads because I, I love, first of all, I think hammerheads are like the coolest family of sharks, just their migratory behavior and things of that nature. Um, long distance migrations, they get to live in the Bahamas and really cool places, but I feel like you probably had many people say great hammerheads. Um, before no actually not many no? okay i'll go with great hammerheads then i i was gonna i was gonna change it but yeah i'll roll with great hammerheads i think like i said hammerheads that's my favorite family of sharks that's why my dissertation was on bonnet heads it was really inspired by the migra- migrations of great hammerheads and you know these animals go long distance incredible migrations and then their reliance on the magnetic field you know to guide them to very specific locations is very cool and since you know hammerheads have the large cephalofoil with a lot of coverage it's likely that they're more sensitive to those magnetic fields so i think they're pretty cool for a number of reasons they are very cool yeah we don't we don't get many um species like hammerhead or great white because i think a lot of people think like you do and they're like oh well everyone would have said that so i'll, I'll not say that i'll go really <laughs> obscure yeah um, 
Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah, but what what was your other answer going to be? Just out of interest. <laughs> I was going to say a blunt nose six skill. Oh, nice, um, nice. Yeah, I've only I've only ever seen one in the wild, um, but we caught it with uh, Dean Grubbs at all in the Gulf of Mexico, and it was just gnarly. We, we pulled it up from the I don't know thousand meters deep or something like that it got to the surface it was still like ice cold and it was just like this lug that we tagged it, it didn't care at all and it just swum off and it will probably live for another 150 years or something um and their teeth are so cool they're just there's so much we don't know about them um yeah they're pretty cool too. yeah they're super cool and um, i just wrote a shark fact file on them actually and so i had to do some research i didn't realize how like badass they are as a predator i think because their name is you know blunt nose it just sounds it doesn't sound as like fearsome as like great white um <laughs> but yeah they're so cool yeah for sure they're awesome animals i'll never forget how cold it, they were when when i touched that shark that we caught it was just because it was you know pulled up from the depths of the ocean when it where it is really cold and it was just so strange because it was the middle of summertime you know and yeah, it was a weird experience. Oh gosh, I can imagine that would be that'd be real cool. Um, but yeah, that brings us to the end of this podcast episode. I think we definitely answered the question: Do sharks have friends? The answer is some of them could, some of them do. Um, some of them could. Yeah. That's a good like <laughs> some of them do. I mean, they definitely show familiarity. And Brian, thank you so so much for coming on the podcast. It's been utterly fascinating to talk to you i say this every time but i could honestly listen to you talk all day i have so many more questions but we'll just have to get you back on (laughs) there you go thanks i had a lot of fun too i look forward to next time this podcast was brought to you by the save our seas foundation it was hosted and edited by me isla hodgson our beautiful artwork is by nicola poulos And the wonderful jingle you can hear right now is by David Knight. A enormous thank you to Brian for all of his time and knowledge. I think you'll agree that this is a super cool area of research and one that I am definitely keen to know more about. If you'd like to follow Brian's work, and I highly suggest that you do, you can find his tags and links in the show notes of this episode on the World of Sharks site. And as always, thank you at home for listening. If you like this episode, please be sure to rate, review and subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with a question you'd like answered, or you just want to say hi, please feel free to email Isla at SaveOurSeas.com or follow us on social media. You can find us at SaveOurSeas on Twitter and at SaveOurSeas Foundation on Instagram. Alrighty, have a awesome week and we will see you next time.